This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. Father, we, we worship you because only you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And so, Lord, we, we come this morning to orient our lives to you, to say we, we are the creatures, you are the creator. You are the potter, we are the clay. We pray for you to mold us and make us and form us and shape us through your word today by the power of your spirit. Lord, whatever we've brought into the service in the way of, of needs, burdens, pain, sin that needs to be repented of, hope that needs to be imparted because we feel like we're just barely hanging on. Lord, whatever the need is today, you know. And we ask you to work now through your word by the power of your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis 45. While you're doing that, thanks so much for your prayers on my, my trip. Um, it went great. Uh, there were so many things. There were seven plane flights <laughs> that were involved in this. They were all good, all smooth, um, getting into the, the country. All of that was so good. And this was a country in the Middle East that until a few years ago was totally closed. You could not go. We were the first trustees to ever enter this country. Uh, but you know what? God opens doors. God opens hearts. God turns the hearts of leaders and countries, and he opens hearts to the, the good news of the gospel, and that is happening. And God uses people, and he uses people to go. He uses churches like, like ours to, to send them to go and to sustain them on the field. And so what God is doing in this world is amazing. Thank you so much for your, your prayers. So this morning, as we wrap up our series in Joseph, we are going to be looking at a bunch of passages in chapters 45 through 50. So we're not going to read just the passage at the beginning because we're going to be reading a whole bunch of them as we go through this morning. So get ready. Get ready to turn those pages. We're going to be Bible swords this morning. Going to be lots of passages, um, particularly in, in, in Genesis. So on, on my recent trip, one day we were, um, we were uh, taking an Uber to where we were going. And so I noticed that the driver spoke just remarkable English. And so I complimented him on it. I said, man, your English is, is wonderful. He said, do you know how I learned it? I said, tell me about it. He said, I learned it by watching episodes of Friends <laughs> on TV. <laughs> And he explained that, that, you know, he watched seasons of Friends, you know, over and over and over with the Arabic subtitles at the bottom. He practically knew the lines, and so what he started doing was removing the subtitles. And that's how he learned English. I think my son 
Caleb could learn a, a foreign language by watching Seinfeld because he's got the lines practically memorized from Seinfeld. And I love Seinfeld too. Not, not, I don't know as much, much of it as my son does, but I enjoy Seinfeld. And there have been lots of studies done about Seinfeld, about what it was that made this so popular. You know, it began in the very early 90s, but even now on Netflix, I mean, it's incredibly popular. What, what was it about Seinfeld that accounted for its success? I mean, it was very different, didn't really revolve around a plot, just kind of jumps from scene to scene. And many who have studied it think that's sort of a, that's sort of a picture of modern life today. Tony Evans says this. He says, there's a plotlessness that exists in many of our lives today. Often we move from one scene, one circumstance to the next without purpose, we wander from high school to college, from college to our first job. Then we're just dying to get married. Then we're just dying to have kids. Next, we're dying to get them out of the house. Then we're dying to retire, only to find out that we're just dying, never having known why we were alive in the first place. Well, that need not be your story. The Bible gives us the big picture. It gives us big picture insight to why we are alive. And we see some of those big picture insights in Joseph's story. So what I want to do this morning as we finish the study of Joseph is look at some of those big picture takeaways, big picture insights from the story of Joseph. And the first one is about God's people. God's people. So when, last time, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Joseph's brothers came to Egypt and, and, and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers after all these years. And so there's this beautiful moment of reconciliation with Joseph and his brothers. So when Pharaoh hears about that reconciliation, he's happy. He's happy for Joseph. He's happy for his family. So let's pick it up in chapter 45 and pick it up at verse 16. Follow along in your copy of God's word. So when news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go on back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can eat from the richness of the land. You're also commanded to tell them, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives, and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Well, we see Pharaoh's gratitude here to, to Joseph. I mean, Pharaoh knows Joseph has saved his neck. And, the, and, and, the, and, and, and his country, God, Joseph allowed God to use him as his instrument to interpret Pharaoh's dream and, and to give him warning that a famine is coming and, coming and, and God used Joseph to, to help store the, the grain so the people could survive, all of that. Pharaoh is grateful to Joseph for what he's done. And so he wants to bless Joseph, wants to, to bless his, his family but we know something else is going on here, right? God has promised that this people, the Jewish people, were going to be preserved. 
and that through this people, God was actually going to bless all peoples. And see, it's remarkable. You know, Pharaoh tells him here, I give you the best of the land, right? Just bring, bring your whole family down here. Give the best of the land. That turned out to be the land of Goshen, which was a very rural area in Egypt, very fertile area. It was because they were shepherds. And Egyptians detested shepherds. They thought of them as kind of dirty people, less than, didn't want to be around, didn't want to be around shepherds. So Pharaoh gives, gives them the land of Goshen, which is this rural area where they can go and tend their sheep and, and, and so forth. Well, see, this turned out to be an incredible blessing. Because what happened every time in the Old Testament when, when Israel would kind of get away from the Lord, one of the things that caused that was that they would get intertwined with, with, uh, with idols and foreign gods and things like that. Goshen was kind of a separate area where the people, the people of God could develop. Because at this point in the story, they're really just one family, right? It's just Joseph's family. It's just jo- Jacob and his sons, and they're really like this nomadic family that they needed to, be, to grow and be formed as a people. And that's going to happen in Egypt, in Goshen. So Pharaoh is providing for them and, and wants them to survive, wants them to be blessed. But of course, we know there's something deeper going on, right? It's God's blessing. God has been preserving his people the whole time because through this people, the Jewish people, God was going to bless the whole world. Take your Bibles and let's turn back to Genesis 12 for a moment. Genesis 12. And let's let's look at what God says to Abraham here. As God is telling Abraham, I'm I'm going to form this people through you, and then through them, I'm going to bless all peoples. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, how does that ultimately happen? How is that promise ultimately fulfilled? It's through Jesus. Because the Messiah is going to come from this people, and so through this people, God's going to bless all peoples. And so you got this promise of all peoples being blessed through Israel, through Israel's Messiah. You've got it at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and then what do you have at the end of the Bible in Revelation? Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you know him? Are you part of God's people that he has formed in Christ? You can know him. You can be a part of this people, God's people. Second, God's promised land. God's promised land. 
So when we look at these closing chapters of Genesis, there's a lot about land. And we see it in, even in, in Pharaoh's uh, words here in chapter 45 that we just read. Look at chapter 45 again and notice what Pharaoh uh, says in verse 18. He says, get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you what? The best of the land of Egypt. And you can eat from the richness of the land. And again, in verse 20, he says, Do not be concerned about your belongings, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. But of course, we know that the promised land for the Jewish people was not Egypt. It was Canaan, Israel. And so, sprinkled throughout Joseph's story are these promises that they're going back to Canaan. They're going back to the promised land. Look at the Genesis 15. Genesis 15, turn there. Genesis 15, and let's look at verses 13 and following. We're looking at a, another promise here that God makes to Abraham. At the beginning of Israel's story, he says, I'm going to form this people, but then he talks about land. Genesis 15, and let's pick it up at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. So, what's going to eventually happen is, there's gonna, as the years are going to go by, Joseph dies, this current Pharaoh dies, and then there's going to be a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph. And so the Hebrew people by that point are becoming very numerous. The Egyptians are threatened by them. They're going to enslave them. Well, God here is telling Abraham all of that, that that's going to happen. But not only is that going to happen, there's going to be a great deliverance. There's going to be an exodus from Egypt that's going to happen. Verse 14, God says, however, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age, and the fourth generation they will return here. The promised land. Let's look at chapter 46, Genesis 46, verses 3 and, and 4. God's telling them more about the promised land, this, this promise of land. Yes, you're down in Egypt, and I'm going I'm to form you there and shape you as a people in Egypt, but that's not your eventual destiny. God says in Genesis 46, 3 and 4, God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. He's talking to Jacob here. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back to the promised land. And then in the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, turn to chapter 50. Now let's look at verse 24. 
Joseph's talking here to his brothers before his death. It says in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised land, Canaan. But of course, we know that the ultimate promised land is not Canaan. Canaan points to the ultimate promised land, the ultimate Canaan. Jerusalem points to the new Jerusalem. Our ultimate promised land that Canaan points to is a new heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem. When Christ comes again and makes all things new. We sung about it earlier. It's a new creation coming. That's the ultimate promised land. It's the promised land that is spoken about in Revelation 21 and verses 1 through 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Praise God. This is our destiny. This is our promised land. A new heaven and earth where we are going to live with, with glorified bodies, physical bodies, but imperishable. Because when Christ comes again, we're going to be raised, we're going to be resurrected with glorified, imperishable bodies to dwell in a new heaven and earth with no more death, where every tear is going to be wiped away, where everything sad is going to come untrue. That is our destiny. That's our promised land as believers. That's what we're looking to. I love what the writer of Hebrews says that the, as of, of Abraham. It says in Hebrews eleven ten, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God's promised land. Third, God's providence. God's providence. Another theme, big picture, that's been winding its way through Joseph's story is the providence of God. How, as we sung about in Canvas and Clay, how God is taking all things and working them together for our future and for our good and for the glory of his name. We have seen that over and over again in the story of Joseph. That God is sovereignly in control 
of history in our lives. I love what our church's confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message says about God's providence. God reigns with providential care over his universe, his creatures, and the flow of the stream of history. And God's not only in control of history, he's in control of our lives as his children. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, have we not seen this in Joseph's story over and over and over? We've seen so many things happen that are not good, but we've seen that even in those things, God was working together for good. We saw Joseph get sold off as a slave, as a 17-year-old boy, by his own brothers. But his brothers weren't in charge of Joseph's story. Just like circumstances in your life. They're not in charge of your story. If you're in Christ, God is writing your story. And he's causing all things, the good things and the bad things, to work together for good. And you know what? Even when we blow it, as we sung about earlier, our failures and mistakes, our sins, a sovereign God can work providentially to bring about his will through all of it. We see this in the story of Joseph again and again. Look at chapter 45 again, and let's, let's, let's review what we looked at last time when, when Joseph's brothers came to him, the same brothers that had sold him off as a slave to Egypt. Chapter 45, let's pick it up, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said. The one you sold into Egypt. Now, what they did was a horrible sin, and they were accountable for that, just like we're accountable for our sins, accountable for our choices. But Joseph understood that God was doing something deeper, something good through it all. He says in verse 5, And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then at the end of the story, after the death of Jacob, when his brothers are still afraid, you know, Joseph's going to get vengeance against us. They come before him once again. What does Joseph say? Chapter 50. Chapter 50. Let's pick it up here at verse 15. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Why do you think he wept? I think he wept because even after all of these years, they have not processed the fact that he has truly forgiven them. They're still afraid. Verse 18, his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What enables Joseph to forgive his brothers is that he understands the providence of God. That his, his brothers were not in control. You know, yes, they did a horrible thing. They had sinned against him in a, in a terrible way. But, but God was in control of his life, just like he's in control of yours and mine. And God was doing something deeper, something beautiful, something good. God was sending Joseph to Egypt to be his agent in preserving the Jewish people because through that people was going to come the Savior of all peoples. Now, do you see how the story of Joseph points directly to Christ? It's all about Christ. This whole book from beginning to end is about Christ. Every story whispers his name. It's all about Jesus. Again, do you know him? Do you know him? You can know him. God's providence. And the ultimate example of God's providence, the ultimate example of something that people meant for evil, but God meant it for good, is what? It's the cross. The cross. Look at the cross of Christ. What could be more horrible? What could be more evil? Then evil people murdering the Son of God, and ultimately it was us that put him there, our sins. God was doing something deeper, wasn't he? Because the cross was the very means, as Jesus bore our sins, that God could provide for the salvation of the world. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God's providence. Fourth, God's peace. God's peace. We talked last time about shalom. This beautiful Hebrew word that 
communicates a sense of wholeness, of well-being, of peace. And of course, a big part of this story is the, is the shalom that God brings to this family that's been torn apart. These brothers sold off their own, their own brother. The, the sin that had happened in this family, their peace had been shattered. And God restores their shalom. That's part of the story. But it's a complicated story, isn't it? It's, it's people sinning and being sinned against, right? Which is kind of like life today. Ian Duguid says this. He says, peace is not easy to find in this broken and fallen world since we are all both sinners and sinned against. We all constantly have to deal with the bitter effects of other people's sins against us and with our own guilt over our sins against others. One thinks of William Shakespeare's play Macbeth where Lady Macbeth is constantly scrubbing her hands to try to scrub away her guilt at the murder because of her involvement with the murder of the old king. You kind of get the feeling Joseph's brothers were like that. You know, when, when, they first, when they, Joseph first reveals himself to them in chapter 45, they're so terrified they can't even speak. They're just mute. They can't, they can't speak. They're terrified that he's going to take revenge. And then in chapter 50, even years later, when it, it would seem that they would understand that Joseph has forgiven them. After the death of their father, Jacob, they're still terrified. Like, our father's dead. Now Joseph's going to get his revenge against us. And they come and fall before him and say, you know, we're your slaves. And Joseph, Joseph weeps. Like, you still don't understand. I've forgiven you. And sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Again, Ian Duguid is wise when he says this. We instinctively want to identify with Joseph, the heroic forgiver of those who sinned against him, However, in many ways, we are more like Joseph's brothers. <laughs> we are the ones who betrayed and used others to achieve our own ends. Our jealousy has led us to murder others in our thoughts and in our words through malicious gossip and explosive anger. Our lust has bought and sold our sisters and brothers in our minds, using them to satisfy our fantasies. Our shalom is deeply broken. Our relationships are fractured and our souls are tortured by the deep-rooted guilt that will not let us go. A scarlet stain that never disappears from our consciousness no matter how hard we scrub. Here's good news. The story of Joseph points to the one who shed his scarlet blood so that our scarlet stain could be removed. That's what it's about. And on that note, 
I want us to look at one more passage, and it's in chapter 45. Turn back to chapter 45 again. I want us to look at this moment again. When Joseph first reveals himself to his brothers. There's something beautiful here. Chapter 45 and verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. And they came near. Joseph says to them tenderly, Come to me. Come to me. Come near to me. Is that not what Jesus says to sinners like you and me? Jesus says, come. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Just come to me. I provided for your forgiveness. My blood was shed for your forgiveness. Come. The great African-American pastor, E.V. Hill, someone preaching to a, a meeting of a bunch of, bunch of Baptist, Baptist Federation. <laughs> and he was preaching on the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the, from the garden. And you remember in, in Genesis that uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, that God, God banishes them from the garden of Eden, tells them to go. And so he puts them out of the garden, puts two angels at the entrance of the garden to guard the pathway back in so they can't come back. Go. And as Dr. Hill was preaching about this, he, he looked behind him and, and, and what, what the leader of the Baptist Federation was sitting behind him and so he was using this as an illustration and so he, he, told, he, he took off his black preaching robe which represented sin and he put it on his friend behind him to represent sin and he said, go, go. And so there the man goes, covered in sin, out down the center aisle, out into the street. And Dr. Hill posted, told two deacons to stand as, as angels <laughs> to, to guard the way, to guard the way back in. But then Dr. Hill started preaching the gospel. Started preaching about Jesus, about how Christ took our sin on the cross so that we could take his righteousness. So that we could be clothed in his righteousness be forgiven. And at that point, the two deacon angels threw open the doors <laughs> in the back, and there comes this, this man taking off, taking off that robe of sin as he comes. Because you know what? Because of the work of Christ, God says, come. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. The way is open. He invites you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Joseph's story, which in so many ways is, is like our own with so many twists and turns that we go through in this life, so many joys, so many sorrows. We are all sinners and sinned against. But in the midst of this complicated life with all of its all of its turns and twists 
in Christ, you are in control of it all. And if we know you through your son, you're working all things for your glory and for our good. We thank you for the work of Jesus that you can, say, you can invite us to come despite all of our sins, despite all of our rebellion, despite the fact that it was our sins that put your son on the cross. You tell us to come because the work has been done. The price has been paid. We have a savior who was crucified for sinners like us, buried, risen. You invite us to come and experience new life in you. As we just continue to pray, listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're watching or listening today or at any point in the future and you don't know Jesus, he invites you to come. Turn to him. Repent. Turn from sin and self and trying to do life and make it work in your own way apart from him. It's never going to happen. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Trust him. Say, Lord, I know that you died for sinners like me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And right now, I receive you as my Savior, my Lord, my King. Right now, if you're not certain that you know Christ, turn to him, trust him. Say, Lord, I welcome you into my life. As a believer, what is God saying to you through Joseph's story? What's he been speaking to you about as we've walked through the story together? You do business with the Lord. You let him work. If it's a sin that needs to be repented of, turn. If it's a burden that needs to be given to the Lord, give it to him. Unload that. If it's a relationship that needs to be mended, if it's forgiveness that needs to be extended, you let the Lord work. So Father, we pray that you would have your way in our lives right now. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, 
God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 